0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government, supported this month by Newton. I'm Gavin Freigard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening to the new Data Bytes briefing room, no expense spent. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. You've chosen a great one to start with, as all of our fantastic speakers tonight consider how the pandemic has changed how government uses data. It's just over a year since the UK went into lockdown for the first time, and a year ago this month since the first online databytes. This is our 10th online edition and 18th overall. Appointment viewing, the nation holding its breath between each episode, public servants getting to important truths despite a series of indecipherable acronyms. Forget line of duty. Data is where it's at. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. We will be tweeting from at IFGEvents and you can join in on hashtag IFGdatabytes. And if you want to submit questions to our speakers, you're almost certainly watching this video embedded on Slido already, so just use the Q&A tool on the screen. If you happen to be on our YouTube channel instead, come to where the party's at, bit.ly slash SlidoDB18, all case sensitive, capital S, capital DB. If you're new to DataBytes, why are we here? Well, data may be a small word, but it contains multitudes. and We want to bring together the various different communities working on data across and outside government together. We want to show people, especially those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data means in practice, and we want to put some really interesting work with data on the record for lots of people to learn from. That's the why, now the how. Each event consists of four presentations, though there's a very slight twist on that tonight. More on that shortly. Each of those presentations lasts for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. You can hopefully see the timer on screen. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. Once those eight minutes are up, we go to eight minutes of questions. Yes, just eight minutes. Make sure you submit your questions throughout the event via Slido before moving on to the next speaker. So four speaking slots of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. You can watch the previous 17 events on the IFG website by following the link on screen. That's Laura, Sam or Ian from last. event, And a great event it was, too. So what's happened since we last met? Well, there's lots we could talk about from vaccine rollout to COVID status certification. We could dwell again upon Wales triumphant Six Nations campaign. Look at England there in fifth. Such a shame. But there was really only one story that kept a script throughout March, and that was, of course, the ever given getting stuck in the Suez Canal, the ship that launched a thousand memes. For those of you that don't speak internet, one of the most popular was something like this the small digger showing something people want to happen, the huge ship representing all the things that were stopping it from happening. Naturally, I decided to have a go at a data related one, and another, and another. And another. And one more. Now, those are all barriers to better data use mentioned in the national data strategy. I'm sure our speakers tonight will be able to give us some calls for optimism in tackling some of those challenges. Someone built a rather fun data viz tool, allowing us to see what the stricken vessel would look like elsewhere. Here it is next to the Institute for Government Building in central London. For those of you that remember the Institute for Government Building and indeed central London, Here it is next to Parliament in Westminster, here it is next to the Scottish Parliament and here it is between the Senedd and the Wales Millennium Centre in Cardiff Bay. Why the devolved parliaments? Well, in a segue as smooth as the Ever Givens voyage through the Suez Canal, next month brings elections in Scotland and Wales and elsewhere. Here's an IFG graphic showing the cephalogical schedule for the next few weeks. I'm going to skip over Scotland and Wales. I need something to talk about in my intro next month, after all, and look at something not currently on this chart. That's the Hartlepool by-election, caused by the resignation of its sitting Labour MP. It's one of three coming up, with an SNP member having resigned to contest a seat in the Scottish Parliament, and the very sad news this week about Dame Cheryl Gillan. Here's a chart of every Westminster by-election since 1979. The top half of each small rectangle shows which party won the seat at the previous general election, the bottom half which party won the by-election. Now, people get very excited about by-elections, Well, a lot of the people watching this probably get very excited about by-elections. OK, my IFG colleagues and I get very excited about by-elections. But in the 166 by-elections since the start of the 1979 to 83 parliament, only 47 have actually seen the seat change hands. That's about 28%. Towards the top, you can see the by-election wins for the SDP, the light purple, and Liberal Gold Alliance in the 1980s. Towards the bottom, Respect and UKIP picking up seats in the 2010s. A real collector's item is the incumbent government gaining a seat in a by-election. Since 1979, that's happened only twice. The Conservatives in Mitcham and Morden in 1982 and in Copeland in 2017 polling suggests that could happen in Hartlepool in a few weeks time but we'll have to wait until the day after the next data bites to find out in the meantime we can celebrate the fact that i got through a whole introduction talking about Hartlepool without resorting to tired tropes about how it voted during the brexit referendum the apparently apocryphal peter mandelson mushy peas guacamole story and anything to do with hangers the monkey so close let's turn to tonight Our first slot this evening goes to Matthew Gould, the chief exec of NHSX, in conversation with Baroness Kate Rock. Yes, in conversation. We're doing something slightly different with our first eight minutes this evening. Matthew and Kate will kick us off with a fireside chat, reflecting on how the pandemic has changed how government thinks about data. Then for the second eight minutes, Kate will weave in your questions. So please do remember to submit them via Slido. They'll be followed by Pamela Dow, Executive Director of the Government Skills and Curriculum Unit at the Cabinet Office on the Seven Sins of Data in Government. Next up will be Mei-An Liao, Head of the Local Digital Collaboration Unit at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government on levelling up the local government response to COVID with data. And finally, we'll hear from Doug Gurr, former Chief Exec of Amazon UK and a government advisor about the lessons government has learned about data in the past year and how we can build for the future. The next Databytes will be at 6pm on Wednesday, the 5th of May, and then on the first Wednesday of both June and July before we take a summer break. We're incredibly grateful to Newton for supporting tonight's event and finding us some terrific speakers. We can only continue Databytes thanks to the generosity of our sponsors, so if you'd like to follow in Newton's virtuous footsteps, please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And if you would ever like to present or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. As ever, we'll be having some virtual drinks after tonight's event. Join us at the link bit.ly slash db18drinks, case-sensitive capital D-B, and use the password ifgdb18, again, case-sensitive, all uppercase except the F. I'll put these details up again at the end. But before we go to Matthew and Kate, another DataBytes innovation this month, a few words from Richard Lum
1: on behalf of Newton. Richard, over to you. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, What an introduction. I'm uh, certainly not going to try and compete with you on the number of jokes I can squeeze into the next couple of minutes. Um, As Gavin mentioned, I'm a uh, partner at Newton Europe. And before we kick off, I just wanted to uh, take a moment to set some of the context and explain why I thought uh, the combination of tonight's speakers was particularly interesting. So Newton are a specialized consultancy, and we work with both local and national government uh, with a particular focus around Uh, driving measurable impacts in society. And it's that measurable nature of what we do uh, that means that as an organisation, everything we do is geared around data. And that's meant over the last year, I've had the privilege of supporting local and national programmes as we've seen this conversation around data change and evolve. So at a local level, uh, I've seen health and care systems make massive advances in the way that they share information to enable the right care, get to the individuals who need it most, and really doing in weeks, what previously would have maybe taken months or years. And at a national level, I was lucky enough to see the unprecedented cross-government work that involved multiple government departments, industry, local government to share and manage the data around clinically extremely vulnerable patients, which meant that the National Shielding Service could be set up in days and provide support to those who needed it most. So while in many ways uh, COVID has been a catalyst to enable these sorts of efforts, um, I think it's also fair to say that it's only really been the beginning or maybe a step in the journey. And so while excellent progress has been made, um, I think it also comes with the recognition that there is still more to do when it comes to sharing, processing and using data across government in this way. So I therefore hope that the, the panel tonight will shed some light on what's been learned where we can go from here and really kickstart a conversation um, as we head towards the recovery phase of the pandemic. So thank you very much for joining. Have a great evening and uh, back over to you Gavin. Thank you very much indeed
0: Richard for that introduction and without further ado I'm going to hand over to Kate and Matthew. Kate over to you.
2: Thank you very much indeed Gavin and um, it's a real privilege to be here today um, this evening So, so thank you very much. And um, I'm absolutely delighted to be um, in, sort of, in the spirit of innovation and, and groundbreaking initiatives to be the first of the data where we're going to have a fireside chat. And I'm really, really thrilled that it's with Matthew Gould, um, who has been doing some extraordinary things um, in NHSX over the last year. Um, so thank you, Matthew, very much. And I wanted to, to start off really with, you know, the premise behind the, these DataBytes events is the belief that better use of data is key to a more efficient and effective government. And I wanted um, to ask you, how do you think that data has the power to translate into better outcomes for patients, particularly?
3: Uh, well, look, thank you, Kate, and thank you, Gavin, and DataBytes for having us, and. For letting us uh, play with the format. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if we can get data well used in the system, I think it can have a massive impact on patients and patient outcomes in a really positive way. And I think uh, you can see, see how that can work uh, at various levels in the the story of what's happened over the last year. So, uh, I mean, the most obvious level is uh, a clinician seeing a patient needs to know certain things about them, and if data doesn't go doesn't move with the patient through the system, then there is a very real risk of uh, sort of patient safety problems, of misdiagnoses, misprescriptions of medicine, and so on and i think one of the most useful things we did during the pandemic was use the uh both the the emergency powers uh, of the public health emergency and the determination shared by everyone that we needed to just do whatever it took to look after people to free up the flow of information so that uh, doctors or nurses or whoever seeing patients could know what they needed to know about them. So there's a direct care question. Then there's also a a sort of optimizing the system opportunity. So another thing we did at the start of the pandemic was set up the NHS data store, aggregating all sorts of different uh, streams of data and data sets around the place so that we could see with exactitude and granularity what was going on where, where there was a shortage of ventilated beds, where there was a shortage of oxygen, where the staff pressures were, so that we were able to give the NHS a chance to manage the crisis and manage scarce resources within the crisis on the basis of a seriously quantitative understanding of where the pressures were. And I think that undoubtedly had an impact on patient outcomes. And then above that, we used the Uh, the the powers that we had because of the emergency to allow data to be used for research, safely and appropriately, but incredibly effectively. So we were able to aggregate the data uh, that allowed the trials that showed, for example, that dexamethasone was an effective therapy, uh, that helped to power the vaccine programmes. and I mean, that undoubtedly had an enormous impact, not just in uh, the UK, but around the world. So, yes, if we get it right, data can directly, indirectly and through research have the most enormous impact on uh, how uh, what happens to patients.
2: That's absolutely fascinating, Matthew. Thank you. And would you say that the main challenges that you faced around the sort of the use of data, would you say that they were... M- more technical or or were they more sort of sometimes more cultural or and organizational? because obviously there were there was there were some challenges, and the and the pace was so fast.
3: So I think it's to a degree all the above. Um, there are definitely some technical issues. Um, the data is uh, held in fragmented ways. It's inconsistent in format, it's inconsistent. Um semantically, it's uh difficult technically to aggregate in the way that 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 it's that we need to. Um and too much of a system isn't uh isn't digital at all. And that particularly becomes the case if you're looking at the safe and appropriate transfer of data between health and social care, for example. Um but there are also a hefty dose of cultural and system issues. So um it's really interesting. we the I think it's really interesting the uh, the the late and much, much missed Fiona Caldecott set a series of principles for the safe use of patient data. And she, having set them, she then returned to them uh, and added another, which is the duty to share can be as important uh, as the duty to protect privacy because, what if we're not careful you create a situation and i think we 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 we've uh, uh, sort of risked falling into this trap where the incentives are not to share where the rules are so complicated and the downside of getting it wrong is perceived to be so great that the safest and sanest option can be don't share because if you get it wrong, you get into trouble. Yeah. And I think a large part of what we need to do is create simple, coherent, empowering rules and guidance for people that means that if you're a doctor or a nurse or whatever, you and you have a patient who needs their data shared, you can tell very easily whether it's appropriate and legal for you to do so. And one of the best things we did, I think, in the last year was a page, a single page of guidance that we put out right at the start of a pandemic, endorsed by the Information Commissioner and by uh, the National Data Guardian, by Fiona, that basically said, if you are a clinician in good faith, trying to look after your patients and you're being sensible, get on with it and it'll be fine. And that had a massive and empowering impact. And it, 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 it was, a, I think, a, a way of dealing with some of the sort of cultural and system issues that you've mentioned.
2: That's fascinating. In our last remaining couple of minutes, um, I actually would like to move on to a very important event that's coming up in May, which is the NHSX's um, launch of the data strategy for the health and social, social care. Now, obviously, you're not going to give anything away to us. So I, I appreciate that. Um, but I wondered if you could give us just a little bit of a flavour and an overview of the strategy and what the big shifts are in, as you set out the strategy
3: for sh- for sure and i mean part of it will be to lock in some of the benefits that we've seen over the past year and we've seen so much shift in terms of digitization uh, i mean progress in transformation transforming what we do in the use of data part of that has been on the basis of emergency rules now some of those rules are appropriate only to an emergency some of them i think we've seen have a sort of really serious benefit and don't uh, lead to inappropriate or unsafe use of patient data, and we'll want to lock them in. So that will be part of it. The goal is to get to a place in which um, data can be safely and appropriately shared for direct care, and that just happens as it should as a matter of course where uh, data can be safely used for research purposes, because we've seen how data saves lives when that's done well, Uh, where we have clear standards uh, of um, how data is formatted and uh, how things are described and the architectural principles that underpin the system so that data can move more easily across the system. We want to put the citizen much more at the heart of of the story where citizens at least have proper access to their own data and increasingly um, you can use data to make the decisions about their own care. We want to make sure the whole country is covered by shared care records so that wherever you live, you know that if you see your GP, they can pull down the report from your consultant, and vice versa. And we want to make sure that data can be a platform for innovation in a way that is difficult at the moment because of how, how hard it can be to access it.
2: Well, I mean, I think we're really looking forward to um, to hearing more in May, and I think all of us will be will be you know waiting for that launch to see more of the detail beh- behind that. So, thank you for that overview. Um, I think now, if we if we uh, are okay, Gavin, I think we can move on to some questions from the audience. Go for um, it. And first off, um, from Miranda Sharp, who says you uh, clearly you all did an excellent job and i think we all would agree that there was some really extraordinary things that took place in the last in the last year and i think that you know congratulations go to you and the team um but what tools asks Miranda, do you wish you had and would have made your job easier
3: well look, thank you for the for the for the question and thank you for the nice comment at the start and i mean look the um NHS and social care clearly, there were literally millions of people busting a gut. It's also worth noting that all the data analysts, all the techies, all the people who allowed the system to move to remote consultations and remote monitoring and allow doctors and nurses to work from home, and they also bust the gut all the way through and helped the system get through the last year without compromising patient safety. Um, what tools I wished I had? Um, well, funnily enough, I mean, I think on one level, the the situation gave us additional tools that, um, in terms of law, in terms of what we could allow to happen and make happen, data sharing, that um, demonstrably made a serious difference. The thing that I would love to, it's not really a tool, but it's unbelievably important that I'd love to bottle from the last year and keep uh, forever is the the can-do spirit, the single-minded collective determination around a shared compelling objective that sort of switched the presumption away from not doing something to doing something. Yeah. And it was so powerful because everyone knew we just had to do what we had to do. Everyone just got on with it. They didn't wait for the 17 layers of uh, permissions and approvals. Yeah. If yeah. we can keep that and a bit more of that spirit and um, uh, sort of get on with it and apologise afterwards, I think it would be brilliant.
2: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'd like to come on to sort of a bit more of an ethical question here now around around, sort of the use of data. Um, this is from a, uh, someone anonymous. But um, is there a risk of the data sharing determination by the government stepping on patients' toes and taking away their control of their personal data? And if you agree with that, how can this change?
3: So look, I think it's really important to underline everything I've said is on the basis that patient privacy is sacrosanct. We're not compromising on that. What we're trying to do is find ways with that absolutely as the headline and the starting point, nonetheless, to make better use of data, uh, both for direct care and for research purposes. And I think there is an opportunity to do both at the same time. And I think we've seen in the last year that It is possible to do amazing things with data um, to to save, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of lives on the basis of therapeutic discoveries on the basis of data in the last year, uh, but not in a way which has compromised patient privacy. And I think the, uh, the technology is starting to offer really exciting opportunities in this respect as well privacy-preserving ways of accessing data. Um, for example, the Open Safely platform. It's a really nice way to show that you, what you don't necessarily need to do is copy and paste vast amounts of data and ship it around. You can keep the data where it is and have auditable access to it in ways that guarantee the anonymity of the people whose data you're looking at. I think increasingly, The opportunity is there to do both at once. So, I mean, obviously, the question is really important. It absolutely needs to be constantly reiterated. This is not an either-or. But increasingly, I think that tension between use and privacy can be overcome with some of the, um, the systems and approaches and technologies that we're now starting to see.
2: And I think what's interesting as well is that the is that you you're seeing more patients engage with their own care as well around that, which I think will also add to the conversation. Um I'm conscious that we've 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 only got a couple more minutes left. Goodness time goes quickly. This is so fascinating. Um, I'm going to ask you a sort of slightly cheeky question here, but you know if you could change one thing, about data in government or the use of data in government? If you you know, you know, had your, your magic wand, what, what would it be, Matthew? What would be the one thing that, that, that you would like to change?
3: So I think it would be, and it's quite a nice link to Pamela, who's coming next, um, having every senior leader be competent and confident in using data. Not that they necessarily need to be know how to code or to be a sort of data analyst, but they know the basics, that they know how they can use data. They know that no decision should be taken except on the basis of what data is available, that they know what questions to ask their analysts so their analysts can do the best job for them. And I mean, one of the real joys for me over the, the last year was to do the course that Pamela and her team set up of uh, data for senior leaders, um, because I realised I, my own um, uh, n- knowledge and competence of it was not all it should be. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if we can get to a world where everyone at the top of government knows how to use data, knows the power of data, knows the questions to ask looking at any given problem, I think it would have an enormous impact.
2: Well, I think that's, I think that's um, an incredibly powerful way to end. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's an absolutely critical element of, of, of what this government, you know, government is working to achieve. And I just want to say, Matthew, thank you um, and thank your team for all the hard work over, over the last year. Um, and it's been a real pleasure to chat to you and to hear some insights about how you're working, about um, what's to come down the track And um, uh, very, very many thanks from all of us here. Well, thank you. It's been fun. And back to Gavin.
0: Thank you, Kate. And thank you, Matthew, Uh, both very much indeed. Huge amount of ground covered there and uh, lots of other questions. I know that we didn't have time to answer, unfortunately, but thank you. And do you hold them back for um, all of our other guests tonight as well, Um, which brings us very nicely. Um, She's already been introduced, uh, essentially. Um, Our second speaker tonight, our second slot tonight is Pamela Dow. Uh, So, Pamela, over to you.
4: Thanks very much, Gavin. Thank you, Matthew. Um, as I say, I don't really need my eight minutes because you've covered all of it. And um, uh, uh, that's very kind words. And th- thank you to the IFG and Newton for including me in such an important conversation. And um, I want to first correct any impression that I'm here because of any expertise in data. I am not a technologist or an engineer. I'm not a statistician or a data scientist. My career in the civil service epitomizes generalism. I'm a very proud generalist, and I will defend my species. We might well need fewer of me in the future. We might need to be more specific about the roles or projects for which we might need additional training or experience. But in general, I am pro-generalists. What I have had is a privileged vantage point since joining the civil service back in 2007, and I have a relevant role now, more of which later. For example, I saw data being used to brilliant effect in improving the school accountability framework back in the early 10s combining demographic data with free school meal data with pupil attainment data to move us on from crude league tables which incentivized all manner of gaming to Progress 8. Ofsted's current measure a sophisticated combination of relevant data sets. Much fairer we can now identify which schools are coasting along in leafy middle class areas and where teachers are performing daily miracles progressing their pupils. I also saw data being used brilliantly in prisons for example, automi- automating cell allocation to reduce gang violence on the wing by keeping people from certain postcodes apart. And in the last two years working in the Cabinet Office on EU exit and then the pandemic, I've seen brilliant people and teams like Matthew and NHSX use mind-blowingly complicated data sets to inform policy and operational decisions. For example, what lorries to prioritize on the M20 um, and, as Richard said, how to make sure shielded and um, vulnerable people get food and medicine. But facing these challenges over the last few years has exposed acutely some more chronic issues in both our universal and our specialist capabilities in government. So with the time I have, I'm now going to exaggerate and simplify in order to illustrate the seven sins of Data in government. I was very pleased with myself for having come up with this concept. And then a colleague of mine, Peter, who I think is watching, hello Peter, pointed me in the direction of this tremendous blog post by George Weiner, which the great Tim Harford cited in one of his podcasts. So I'm stealing with pride here. I don't actually think these sins I will talk about are unique to government or the public sector. I've worked in consultancies and charities in private and, and, and public sector, and they're present everywhere. I share them today because understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. So, Sin 1 is the CP Snow Sin, Data Illiteracy. Does everyone know CP Snow's Two Cultures essay, written in 1959? His thesis then was that we separate between humanities and sciences too early in this country, and our national institutions are dominated, led by humanities graduates. It's well, well worth a read snow wrote in 1959 I have been present at gatherings of people who are thought highly educated and who have who have with considerable gusto been expressing their incredulity at the literacy of scientists once or twice I've asked how many of them could describe the second law of thermodynamics the response was negative yet I was asking something which is about the scientific equivalent of have you read a work of Shakespeare's I now believe that if I had asked an even simpler question such as what do you mean by mass or acceleration which is the scientific equivalent of saying can you read not more than one one in ten of the highly educated would have felt that I was speaking the same language. It's not as bad as that now, much has moved on from 1959, but it rings true still, I'm afraid, and it leads directly to sin two, dataphilia or fetishism of data. What happens here is that we recognize the CP no issue, we worry about it in the senior civil service, we lack the competence and therefore confidence in interpreting data ourselves, so we turn to people who speak data in our analysis, and we project all our hopes and dreams onto the truths that they hold, numbers the science the data bad why bad because sin three exceptionalism we then don't challenge the person presenting the data with the same confidence that we challenge someone making an argument based on other things on context or history or qualitative subjective insights epidemiologists and mathematical modelers as we have seen in great detail this year know the margins of error in their work they know the flaws they're completely confident in challenging each other Now, exceptionalism is an enabler of sin 4, pretension, otherwise known as a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Where there's a lack of rigorous, confident challenge, junk assumptions get through. I'm certainly guilty of sitting in rooms thinking, I'm not sure about this, but loads of people cleverer than me are also in this room, and the speaker seems very authoritative, and there are lots of decimal points in those slides, so junk assumptions arise from sin 5 – artistry we're all susceptible, there are lots of good cautionary tales about this sin. People like Hannah Fry and Ben Goldacre have very wittily exposed it over the years and others like Hans Rosling or David McCandless have shown just how beautiful and influential well presented data can be for a storytelling species like us. We need patterns to make sense of the world but that's our vulnerability too. We see patterns where there are none or we focus over much on pattern things which may be less relevant to our um, public policy challenge than a messier picture. I've also called this the economist's sin because of the risk inherent in simple, pleasing models, utility curves that bear very little relation to the irrational, illogical, glorious behaviour of human beings. SIN 6 is a quick and easy one and an issue that many, many good people across government are working on right now, and which Matthew talked about uh, uh, well just now, covetousness. It applies everywhere, not just the NHS, and it's not venal or in bad faith, not sharing data sets. A lot of it is compliance with, yes, possibly outdated policies, but compliance nonetheless. A lot of it is a technical inability to share. A lot of it is very proper care taken with sensitive personal information about people's health or safety. But we know we will be able to make and implement better policy by applying machine learning or big data techniques to relevant sometimes seemingly unconnected, merged sets of data. We've done it. Matthew's done it. We have to have a very open conversation about this and reach a public shared consensus about what level of privacy we want set against what level of efficiency or speed or personalization we want in our public services. Having such a conversation will allow us to talk openly about our final sin, sin seven, irresponsi- irresponsibility with data or inhumanity. Sometimes we just need to make a decision against what the data is telling us against rational logic because we hold other things more sacred, because we are weighing up other considerations than just utilitarian efficiency. Stephanie Hare is a very good speaker and writer on this topic in relation to, for example, how much privacy we're prepared to give up for safer public spaces. There's loads of public policy examples of this, particularly in criminal justice. So... In summary, when you're not confident in using data or competent, when you're insecure about it, when you fetishise it, you're unfortunately susceptible to data presented prettily, data used in dangerous isolation without enough care to other important factors. So what will save us from our sins? Well, happily, part of the answer at least is the new government skills and curriculum unit, uh, which I'm very fortunate to, to lead, and our goal of a properly resourced campus for training and learning. As close students of government among you will know, improving science, technology, data skills was a very important theme of Michael Gove's speech at Digital Park last year, and which underpins much of our approach to improving knowledge, skills, and networks. And the greatest of these is knowledge. Our new curriculum framework is designed to both raise the floor and raise the ceiling to have a higher bar for and more prescription of the core universal expectations of everyone. And then at the other end, a higher bar for the specialist technical skills we need for the new challenges of modern government. We're building a campus. And that was a very carefully chosen metaphor because it draws a circle, a virtual circle, around all the faculties, disciplines which have successfully evolved over the last decade in the form of the cross-government Expressions and functions. Tom Reed and Joanna Davidson's arrival in government and di- um, digital service and the new Central Digital and Data Office is great timing for raising the floor and raising the ceiling. Some level of comfort with data is intrinsic regardless of role profession. As Matthew described, in time you won't be able to progress to the senior so- civil service without experience and expertise in using big data, in using some of the analytical tools and knowing which analytical tool to, de- to deploy it in which problem um, for, you know, for policy or operational purposes or having led a digital project in some way so conscious incompetence is a good first start uh, and uh, the, the the metaphor that best describes and um, the point on which matthew ended was we don't all need to be car mechanics but we do and we will need to know when we need to call one i don't know how close i was to eight minutes there gavin
0: that was fantastic, Pamela. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I think a lot of you already know that you can put pet questions to Pamela. We're getting lots coming in. Uh, do so via Slido, the Q&A that you should have on your screen. Um, so we'll kick off the second uh, eight minutes with a question from Anonymous, uh, who seems to be asking a lot of questions this evening. Um, in this particular Anonymous's experience, um, to transform the use of data across an organisation, it needs to be driven from the top. Would you agree? And how can we best support senior leaders to address a lack of data literacy? literacy
4: um, if anonymous is uh, my colleague james coote who uh, who's already had a uh, who's been in in this in this position i think came to one of the data bytes um uh, uh, slots a while ago and as matthew alluded to i completely agree with you um that the, the this has to be led from the top and it is being led by the top you know and um, the cabinet secretary alex chisholm and the, you know the the heads of all the cross government functions are absolutely um focused on this you know for all the reasons that matthew described in the la- in in the last year but 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 certainly before that too and the you know the one of the one of the illustrative projects and um, we took on um, uh, uh, or, or, or or helped promote early on in the creation of the unit was um, James Cootsy's um, uh, brilliant um, SCS Data Masterclass. And that was about, you know, just 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 having a higher bar for the universal um, expectation of knowledge, skills and networks here. So completely agree with you.
0: Uh, and just to say, if anybody does want to revisit James's presentation, it was in the February Data uh, which you can find mm-hmm. on the Chief Government website. Um, so another anonymous, possibly the same anonymous, maybe a different one, who knows, um, asks, how do we keep hold of the current data expertise being used to tackle COVID within the government in future to continue to aid policymaking?
4: It's a really good question, and um, because one of one of the things that one one of um, uh, the IFG has written well on this in the past, one of the biggest challenges in a really really complex organisation system like the civil service is, is is retaining corporate knowledge, retaining corporate memory, and um, storytelling is one way. Events like this is one way. Having some um, having more focus on the skills knowledge networks that people have and build throughout their careers, and some way of retaining that as they make the you know with without um. Without um uh, uh, changing one of the great things about the civil service, which is that you know your career pathway can go in all sorts of Z-shaped directions, but that you carry that you carry your expertise and uh, with you, and that your your managers as you go through your career are more conscious of the skills that you have. Um. But yes, that is a it would it would be it would be a great shame if we lost some of the huge and um, the huge gains we've made over the last year.
0: Uh, so this is not an anonymous question. This is from Sam uh, from Med Confidential. Evening to you, Sam. Um, he sort of, uh, I think, is worried that it, it it's easy to ignore politically complicated issues rather than address them. So how does government avoid sharing itself in self-congratulatory platitudes? I suppose that there's also a question there about how things like um, the sort of seven sins that you talked about, how do you actually operationalise those to make make a difference uh, across government?
4: Sure, I mean, I, I mean I, I, Sam, my perception isn't that we're showering ourselves in self congratulatory pratitudes. I feel like there's been quite a lot of self-flagellation over the last year. I was on an event, um, uh, as you know, as there should be, you know, you have to learn from mistakes as as, as well as celebrate successes. I was on an event with um uh, my counterpart in the in in as one of one of my counterparts in the Canadian government a while back. Who was talking about the um the, the, the best known rock band in Canada had a hit last summer. Um, I, forgot, I think they're called Rush. Um, had a hit last summer, celebrating basically their equivalent of DWP's success in getting, um, you know, benefits payments out in the first months of COVID. Um, we, you know, which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, we just wouldn't have anything like this in this country. You know, we just wouldn't have Mumford and Sons talking about uh, uh, the DWP. So I, I, I think celebrating celebrating um, successes is something that we should actually be better about. But but but, but I completely agree with you. We certainly shouldn't um, shy away from where things have been exposed. And I hope I haven't done that just now.
0: Excellent. Thank you. We've got um, another anonymous. Um, This is a really good question that sort of reminds me of some of the debates about big data when that was a buzzword um, in the last decade. Has the greater availability of data led us towards trusting extrapolation of trends rather than understanding the drivers behind, behind them, meaning we can miss when circumstances may change? What can we do about that?
4: I think it's a really good point and that's what I was trying to get at with a couple of my sins wasn't it that that you know we we um we, uh, we the one of the most important um, things we have to you know with competence and confidence comes challenge doesn't it and and know, knowing what the data does tell you and what it doesn't tell you and I, you know what i i've really enjoyed this year is working a lot more closely with um, you know experts in 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 their field of whether it's you know epidemiology or um or you know mathematical modeling and uh, you know they're, they're they're sort of you know both you know, humility and and knowledge of what the data doesn't tell you and what you shouldn't read into the data. And, you know, a really big part of the SES data masterclass is just becoming more comfortable with, with, with spotting where where you misinterpret data.
0: Um, you'll never guess who's asked this question. It's anonymous, um, and again, I think this probably goes to a few of the sins that you've mentioned already. Um, how far do you recognise the limitations of machine learning? For example, the issue of garbage in, garbage out when it comes to data quality.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a massive issue. It's a massive issue, um, and uh, and we, you know, the, it, I, I again, I'm not I'm all, for, outside my comfort zone in so, in some of these questions, but I think one of the things, one of the things we can do is is to better better use the you know machine learning tools that 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 don't rely on human beings to spot mistakes. So so you know we are very bad we are a very bad species at. Um, routine, predictable, high-volume um, uh, uh, um, uh, needs behavior. C- computers are not; they're better at that. So where we can where we can automate things like that, all the better for doing the things that we are actually do quite well, which is the more subjective stuff.
0: Excellent. Um, anonymous again. Uh, good evening, anonymous. Um, if data helps us make evidence-based decisions how can we leverage that capability when there's a historical culture of solutionizing in advance of the analytics i think somebody else um, also asked a similar question which is sort of um evidence uh, sort of policy based evidence making as it were so how can we make sure that we actually use the data rather than um sort of rushing to conclusions
4: i think I think actually that's not a data specific question. I, th- I think I think that's just something that, as public public policy makers, public policy commentators, and um, uh, you know people who are tasked with um, uh, you know d- advising ministers on the best course of action to achieve to achieve the shared goal, you just have to keep challenging yourself that you haven't come to it, you haven't brought your own assumptions and biases to it.
0: And in the sort of 40 seconds or so that we've got left, um another question from anonymous what is the biggest barrier to improving data sharing between government bodies to address societal issues
4: I, I hate sort of saying it's a cultural thing because it's so nebulous isn't it culture is culture it's just the sort of com- collective acts of, of millions of people but I do think I do think Matthews um, response to this question was the right one which is those we we did it this year so if we can just bottles and you know, and and newton was part of a lot of these conversations doing great work in lots of different uh parts of government we we managed to over overcome and um, some of some of what had seemed like and um, uh you know insurmountable barriers so if we can just bottle that i do um i uh, uh, an early boyfriend of mine was a tabloid journalist and uh, I, it just reminded me he used to sit there with a copy of the data protection act in front of him so that if anyone said to if anyone said to him i can't I'll tell you that it's data protection, isn't it? He said, "Where exactly in the Act is it, it, I've got it in front of me? Where exactly in the Act does it say you can't share that information with you?" And a bit of that sort of attitude, um, uh, I think, might be quite helpful. Let's have a presumption that, that 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 we can share. But again, doing it and demonstrating that, you know people's safety and health and, and uh, privacy has been protected, and we made huge, huge gains that improved people's lives, telling those stories starts to change a culture, doesn't it?
0: Fantastic. Pamela, thank you very much indeed. So many questions we could have kept going for much longer. And maybe at some point we'll get you back to talk about uh, seven data virtues as well as the, yes. as well as the <laughs> sins. Thank you very much indeed.
4: Thanks, Gavin.
0: Um, our third speaker tonight is Mayen. So Mayen, over to you. and I think you may be on mute. Excellent.
5: Thanks, Kevin. Has have, I have to be the first one, don't I? I'll get cracking. Thank you, every, everyone, for coming tonight. My name's Main Liao. I'm Head of Local Digital Collaboration Unit at the Ministry of Housing, Communities, and Local Government. To start with, I wanted to give everyone a quick overview of how we've been supporting local government to solve common digital and data challenges. And the cornerstone of our program is the local digital decoration. Mm-hmm. It brings into one place the shared vision and ambition of local government to redesign services around the needs of the people using them, break the dependence on inflexible and expensive technology, design safe, secure ways of sharing information, demonstrate digital leadership, and embed an open culture to work in the open whenever we can. Our program is two years old now, and 232 councils have signed the Declaration and committed to its principles. During COVID, we launched a specific fund to support local authorities on common digital and data COVID challenges in July 2020, and we received 125 applications from 94 councils, selected 11 projects, many of them data, and some of the examples I will show shortly are funded from this fund. Like other frontline organizations, local government faced unprecedented challenges, and during the first lockdown, local authorities across the country had to rethink and find new ways of delivering services from a distance, and in addition, respond to new demands, for example, shielding vulnerable residents. However, COVID was a catalyst and gave councils laser-like focus to help their communities, And I wanted to showcase a number of examples where we saw substantial positive developments in use of data by councils. To start with, sharing of data, especially health data, significantly increased over a short period of time and was spearheaded by Department of Health and Social Care's mandating health organizations and local authorities to share patient information for the purposes of controlling the outbreak and give support to those who are at highest risk. Local government had to work closely with volunteer and community services as well to deliver support for residents and the teams at Central Bedfordshire and Camden supported by Lotte, the London Office of Technology and Innovation, brought together VCS staff and council data experts to explore how different types of quantitative and qualitative data can be used to deliver better support to residents during the pandemic. The team created a user manual for how these types of organizations can work together going forwards, and hopefully support the transfer of knowledge between council data people and VCS people working on the ground. Councils had to rethink how they modeled and forecasted demand on vital services. As lockdown was implemented, it presented a particular set of challenges for Children's Services Department because many of the traditional pathways, to identify and engage with vulnerable children, as examples through schools, were either significantly reduced or changed. And also vulnerable children were spending more time at home with their families under increasingly stressful conditions. Greater Manchester Combined Authority and the Data to Insight Network brought together all of the work being done independently by local authorities and built a shared tool that you can see in the snapshot here to support local analysts to see the impact of COVID on metrics influencing demand, and create forecasts exploring what continuation of those patterns would mean for demand over the coming months. And the open source tool has now been shared with a community of 600 data analysts, which is amazing. We also saw councils publish and share information and data to help residents make informed decisions. For example, Camden and Buckinghamshire built an easy-to-use get help if you're self-isolating tool so that residents can find support services if they're staying at home because of COVID. Newcastle City Council developed a digital tool to identify where parts of a city are overcrowded by applying machine learning to real-time CCTV footage to count how many people were on certain streets, and combine that with other data sources to give information to citizens, so they can make informed decisions about their movements. Bournemouth Christchurch and Pool Council launched their BCP Beach Chat app in July, which was regularly updated during the day with how crowded beaches were, and across the summer to allow visitors to make informed choices to avoid crowded beaches. Continuing on the theme of councils making data available, we did see great examples of councils publishing their COVID data. And here's an example of a council's public dashboard that was built to show what kind of help people were asking for in what areas. Data use practices in local authorities overall changed for the better, but it wasn't without challenges. In our own research, we found that the top three challenges were matching health data to councils' own records. The different format of data sets also made matching very difficult. And thirdly, there were issues with unique identifiers. Not all data sets had unique identifiers, let alone the same identifiers. For example, property and address identifiers versus people identifiers, and figuring out how to match the two. Authorities were also combining internal and external data sets to help identify vulnerable residents. But when data matching has to be done across 20 different data sets, and a snapshot is shown here, combined with the top challenges previously mentioned, meant a lot of complex and manual work for council officers. In some some cases, council data teams had to work around the clock to gather, match, and process these data sets to help identify vulnerable people and match them to volunteers and support services. Whether the momentum gained during COVID will be sustained in the long term is still to be seen, but I'm personally hopeful for a number of reasons. We've seen council standardizing approach approaches and increase in joint delivery, especially in areas of identifying vulnerable people and coordinating actions across multiple agencies. Shown here is the emerging standards developed by ISTAN UK, Sigmore and Huntingdonshire District Council Council to define and standardize attributes, to create protocols to share interventions and actions across multiple agencies, and a practical information governance framework for discovering, assessing, and joining data. Also, we've seen councils come together to formalize what they've learned and shared practical approaches. The digital leads team was receiving in the region of seven inquiries each week from other councils asking for advice and tips. So they joined forces with Croydon Council to design and begin documenting their experiences via an online toolkit to help other councils and community-based organizations. This is really important work, and there's a clear need given the shift to online self-service during the first wave of the pandemic. Lastly, like in central government, we saw new digital services being built and launched at speed during covid I want to end on the example of Ada and Wording, who built their community volunteer system in 48 hours from scratch, which allowed volunteer and charity organisations to help out residents in need, self-serve and pick up volunteer tasks and send completed task information back to the council. Thank you for listening and over to Gavin now for questions
0: fantastic thank you very much indeed mayen um we've got some brilliant questions coming in already i should say um obviously mayen is uh, subject to pre-election guidance so there might be a few things particularly about sort of future government direction that she won't be able to answer but um we've got lots of brilliant questions so hopefully um we've got 8 minutes of fantastic discussion ahead of us so let's start um with um, Anonymous, again, um, as one of our previous speakers already tonight has just called them, a prolific questioner with eclectic interests. Um, Anonymous asks, how could we be more proactive in our future approach to drive the urgency and creative approach to transforming the use of data that the COVID emergency caused, but without needing an emergency event as a trigger point?
5: I think same as what uh, Matthew was saying, we need to find a way to bottle all the lessons learned and actually all the proactive, and the yeah, constructive ways to deliver new services as well as the use of data needs to be looked at and also not lose the sense of joint delivery that I shared in terms of the examples. There's so much goodwill at the moment that organizations want to work across boundaries and we shouldn't lose that. But I also encourage senior leaders like Pamela and Matthew have said, to increase their data skills so that they can take forward in terms of, yeah, data literacy so that we don't get into this, you know, just the need for a a pandemic to drive those behaviors.
0: Uh, two uh, sort of related questions from um, two anonymouses Anonymous I, Anonymous I, who knows. Um, one asks, how do we encourage this great local innovation while also trying to take a national approach to issues with the benefit that national level funding and attention brings? And uh, the other question, which is um, sort of related, how do we better transfer the knowledge, skills, and use of data in local government with those in central government and vice versa so that we can all learn more effectively from one another?
5: So uh, I, I would say, from the the learning side of things, there's actually a lot of cross-government communities that are already in place, and I think that's actually for digital folk. There's a really tight community where we learn from each other, and we can ask people questions, but it also a safe space to ask those those questions. And I think understanding where those networks are but also growing those networks into the places where heads of services functional leads and practitioners are is something that we we certainly will want to do and want to kind of improve on so i think that 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 is something that we want to look at taking forward as as a team to to improve those digital and data connections but as, as it stands now, there's there's no lack of communities, there's no lack of knowledge base, there's no lack of portals out there where you can make those connections. So I, I would say, yeah, go, go out and look for, for those. And we're also happy to help here to kind of pinpoint people to really useful networks. And there's just such an amazing community out there, but you need to know where they are and you, and you need to be um, also part of that community before you, you can lean on those networks. And sorry, what was the first question, Gavin? Uh,
0: The first question was um, encouraging great local innovation while also trying to take a national approach to issues with the benefit the national level funding and attention brings, I think.
5: I think that's what we're trying to do on our programme because we have that central view of the common digital and data challenges that's happening out in local government. And we have a very unique approach where it's a bottom up um, approach. So we go out and ask local authorities what are the things that they actually want to work on, and we at least help seed fund um, those projects so they can get off the ground. And how we, I guess, kind of um, make that scalable is something that we're we're exploring today. But I think COVID has definitely shown that collaborative work is possible. Working cross boundaries is possible. So there's so, again, so many lessons learned here that we can bottle and hopefully take for in the future.
0: Excellent. Thanks. Um, another sort of pair of related questions. Anonymous asks, and again, this sort of follows on from what you've been saying, how do we build the capability at a local level to support ongoing digital innovation in what is such a competitive market? Although on the other hand, as Alison Davis asks, this seems to have created a lot of local innovation, but how do you balance this with providing a quality of capability and avoid significant variations?
5: That's a, that's a good good question. So we, we definitely in terms of like for our program anyway, we do provide free digital and data training to local council officers. So we encourage officers to kind of take up that offer. And as kind of pa- Pamela and Matthew said, there's also a lot of master classes out there, not just for central government, but a lot of great local government organisations like Socrates, for example, offers courses for not only officers but leaders as well. So I think that continue improvement increasing of skills, whether it's data literacy or digital literacy needs to continue continue on. And And I think there's there's no getting away that there's a skills skills gap, especially in data science in local government. CDIs like recent report um, stated that, that is one of like the barriers to improving data use in in local government. And as you said, there's a real competitive nature of it, like local government just cannot afford to pay the kind of you know, pay grades that not only in central government, but the private sector offers to, to data scientists. But I think one, one thing to kind of note is that we can lean better on expert external experts like universities, and we also work really closely with other organizations like CDI, which is you know, presenting great reports and really practical tools to, to use as well. So I would say lean, lean on those kind of external organisations that is there to help not just central government, but local government as well. Uh,
0: a classic question next. How can we go about fixing the plumbing in local <laughs> government and enabling better use of and sharing of data?
5: It's, I think it's one of the hashtags, I can't remember whether we started it, but it's certainly grown and used across across a lot of uh, yeah, Twitter feeds. We, we're still fully behind fixing the plumbing, like for us fixing the unsexy, but really crucial uh, things in local government is, is so important. But there's also a big challenge here, Like local government has around 600 odd services under one roof, So trying to get breadth and depth is not just a challenge for us, but it's for the entire sector. But again, what we've seen from COVID is that councils are starting to recognise that processes can be standardised, like the iStan UK, um, example that I showed. And then we're also trying to encourage that collaborative work so that councils come together and work on common challenges rather than on their own. And as much as possible, we're encouraging councils to work in the open. And we're trying to do the same, like all of our projects that are funded have to work out in the open, and all the outputs are available um, openly so other councils can reuse. So I think that is some uh, culture wise that we need to get better at so that everyone can learn from each other and not just talk about the again the the sexy and like the um successes. It's actually a lot of like the failures and the lessons learned that we also need to get into that culture of, of speaking about. And that's not an easy thing, not for human central government, local government, but certainly in the closed communities, again that's that's the amazing place for us to learn from each other and like what actually doesn't work. It usually is the biggest lesson.
0: I'm going to squeeze in a very quick final question. It's just a few sentences, uh, if you can, from Mary Season Barry, Evening to Mary Season. What recommendations would you give other UK government departments on creating collaborative working practices with data?
5: Uh, for us, it's actually... D- do the co-creation and collaborative working um, with with local government and that's been our mission from the very get-go and I think in that way you will create tools, approaches and solutions that ideally work for central government, local government and hopefully residents and communities as well.
0: Fantastic, great note on which to end. Mayen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, we now move to our final speaker this evening, uh, Doug, over to you.
6: Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, everybody. Fascinating discussion so far. Um, you may wonder what somebody who spent most of his career in the private sector and until fairly recently ran a, a big shopping business has got to say about government. Uh, but for my sins, I am, as I think Gavin said, uh, I'm a non-executive department of health and have spent a lot of the last year helping out behind the scenes on some of the, the work on health and data. Uh, and I also led the review for the Cabinet Office on the use of data generated across government back in the autumn. And And from that, I just thought I'd share um, four lessons. Uh, They're not meant to be complete, exhaustive, but in no particular order, the four lessons I thought I'd share with you. Uh, First of all, the good is very good. Secondly, uh, products are not projects. Third, data is not oil. And finally, it's still all about the people. So if I I just give you a minute on each of those, um, First of all, the good is very good. And I think you heard it before in some of the examples that Pamela gave or Matt gave is that actually, you know, we have seen some exceptional performance. And and you heard from Matt about some of the work that NHSX has done. You know, his team also spun up things like the test and trace system from standing start in four weeks that actually supported that incredible scaling up. You know, if you ask uh, about the furlough scheme, you know, to pay the wages of 9 million people across the UK from a standing start almost from nowhere with nothing really going wrong, that's an extraordinary achievement driven by teams at HMRC and others to actually really pull together. Or even something like the EU registration scheme that registered 3.5 million people fully digitally with really, and you don't hear about these because they just worked. So there are actually some extraordinary examples over the past 12 months in particular where central government departments or ALBs or agencies have actually spun up some services that frankly stand up against the very best you'll see in your own world, private or public sector. So I think you should just be reassured that, you know, when we turn our minds to it, the good is really, really good. That's lesson number one. You know, there is some really good stuff out there. We can do this. I think lesson number two though, um, I I worry a lot, uh, having looked at a lot of use of technology or data across government, that we still sit here in a a project mentality, and technical products are not projects. You know, we tend to think of a piece of technology as if we were building a bridge. You know, it's a, you know, you, you set up an SRO, you've got a project team, you spin the thing up, you build it, you finish it, and you move on. And you've got all of your sort of good clever methodologies and systems for that, and that's just not the way technology works. You know, those systems were designed for capital intensive projects where the specification was pretty clear. You kind of know what a bridge is meant to do. We've been building them for many thousands of years. You can sort of presign them. You know you can test them. And once you've built it, you don't need much maintenance compared to the upfront capital cost. That is not the way technology works. Products go on the whole time. And if you look at any of those examples that I called out earlier, whether it was the furlough scheme or... You know, the sort of teams, you know, the test and trace scheme or the vaccines technology. These are products. And they and if you look at the ones that have worked well, you know, there was a huge piece of work around rigorously, you know, trading off what mattered, what didn't matter. You know, they, they were cloud deployed so you could move fast. They used really good UX. There was massive use of APIs to call off some of those existing data sets you heard from others. They were web labs. You could test what worked and what didn't. And perhaps most importantly, they were resourced as an ongoing program. The project never ends. The product exists for as long as you want that product to be in use. And if you just treat it like a project and move on, you get a disaster. And I think there's a real mindset we need to be a bit careful of there, because I think too much of the tools are designed for capital projects, not for technology programs. A third lesson: um, there is this phrase that data is is the new oil, and it's just not, I'm afraid. You know, it's a truism that data is the new oil and there's somehow a sense that, you know, the ownership or control of very large data sets will in of itself create enormous value. And that's simply not true. It's necessary, but it's by, as you heard before in some of the examples that Mayan just gave us or Matt gave us earlier, it's by no means a sufficient condition. It's necessary, but the value creation doesn't just come from having data. The value creation comes from improving the quality and granularity of decision making. And that comes from really hard yards to make sure your data is in the right state, as you've heard, to make sure that you can dedupe it, you can cleanse it, you can deliver it at the right moment to inform it, you can deal with the privacy issues. You know, and frankly, beyond, you know, the really hard bit is not having data. There's an awful lot of data out there. And trust me, there are government data sets that go way beyond anything you'll see in, in other organizations. There are lots of commercial organizations with vast data sets that they make almost no use of. It's a necessary but by no means sufficient condition. The hard work is saying, how do we actually make sure that we structure, mobilise and deploy those data sets to improve decision making? And I'd go a little bit further than that because a lot of the discussion we heard earlier and some of the great examples we heard from Pamela and others were about using data to improve human decision making. And that's that's an incredibly valuable use of data. And you heard about it in some of the ways in which we can um, we've been able to address the pandemic at both the local and national level. But it's really only half the story. The true power gets unleashed when you use data to empower machine decision-making. Because only by empowering machine decision-making can you actually increase radically the velocity of decision-making. And only by increasing the velocity of decision-making can you improve the granularity of decision-making. And it turns out that if you really improve the granularity of decision-making, you can enormously improve the quality of outcomes. But that comes not without its dangers. I think we heard the phrase from Anonymous, garbage in, garbage out. You know, phrases like machine learning get bandied around a lot. Actually, it takes them to that last point, which is the fourth lesson is it's all about people. And there's a story I used to tell to the young kids who joined us at Amazon. And they all arrive, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And they say, what do we do? How do we get on? What are the skill sets I need? And if you'd have asked that question of any of us, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago when some of us were, you know, Beginning our careers or mid-careers, you kind of had to know how to use money, and you kind of had to know how to use human capital—people. You had to, and we put huge effort into teaching people how to learn and how to deliver systems through people. We put huge effort into how to making sure that we deploy market money effectively and deliver value for money. And all of this, the world today—you have to be able to know how to deploy money, people, and technology. And if you want a way of thinking about this, the way I used to articulate it to the folk turning up with somewhere like Amazon, I said, look, fast forward three to five years, you're leading a team. Half your team are going to be people, half your team are going to be machines. And our job is to teach you how to manage machines, to know how they go wrong, know how to make sure you can inspect and order them. If you don't do that, you're not actually going to be able to deliver value for your citizens, your customers. And, and I think a couple of people mentioned it and I was really pleased to see some of the examples Pamela gave because this isn't just a challenge for, its not. this isn't just for the geeks, it isn't just for the technologists, it isn't just for the digital people, is isn't the IT person. This is a challenge for everyone. I would question whether anybody in any organisation as a senior leader can realistically add value if they can't be equally as comfortable with walking into a situation and being able to say, can I properly balance to actually move forward to make progress here? How I deploy not just people, and not just money, but also technology. And we've seen that in spades in the last 12 months. You know, if you can just take the most recent example of a vaccine program, you know, try rolling out a vaccine program without the technology that gives you the reassurance that you're not going to give a vulnerable patient five doses, not three, because he or she can't remember whether she's been in or not. Try actually assessing the clinical safety of drugs that have been rolled out at a phenomenal, unprecedented rate if you don't actually have the data to make that the decision-making. And none of that works unless you build the technology behind it. So remember, the good is very, very good. Congratulations. It's really impressive to see. It's inspiring. Product, not project. Products and not projects. Data is not oil. And as ever, it's still all about the people. Thank you very much. Hopefully that leaves a bit of time for some questions.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Doug. Yes, we've got eight minutes uh, for questions. So please do, there's, there's lots to dig into there. So please do submit them via Slido. Um, we've got one from Sam from Med Confidential to start with. Um, and you sort of did a little bit of this in in your sort of final remarks, actually. Can you comment on how your lessons apply to the civil servants building the COVID app or working in the NHSX more widely?
6: Yeah, Great question. I mean, I would, um, I think a lot of this is, is really comes back to, if you look at really well-built products, you know, they start from what is the, what is the citizen benefit you're trying to generate? What is the problem you're trying to solve? And at this, and then you deploy them fast. You deploy them fast because there's only so much you can do just planning ahead. The reality is the interaction with anybody here from NHSX or any of these things trying to build one of these apps until you actually put it in front of tens of millions of citizens with very different personal circumstances and see how they actually engage with it, you just don't. Know. You kind of think you do, but you just don't. So what you have to do is get stuff out there fast, You know, boil it down, be in the room at the point when you're making these decisions about to deploy at scale in a way that works quickly. We have to make brutal trade-offs. We have to just get out what we sometimes call the minimum lovable product. It's got to work. It's got to be good. It's got to be, it's got to be, you know, something customers are going to love. But you can't judge before you've actually tried it what people really, how they behave, how they use it, et cetera. So perhaps the single most important thing is once it's out there, you know, that's just, that's day one. Day two is, right, how in the next four weeks can we release the next iteration where we fix some of the things that didn't work? We've improved the things that customers thought as they really wanted to see. We've observed how people actually interact with this app rather than what they thought they did. We've got obsessive about simplifying it. We've tested, you know, statistically, rigorously, different presentations, different things. We've, yes, we've got nudge-driven hypotheses about what language we might use or what color make the buttons, but we've tested them. So that's really the methodology you've got to get into. Get it out there fast, start to then build and develop your product based on real world, real time feedback from the systems you're building that product for. And that's that's kind of, you know, there's nothing new or complicated about this. This is sort of standard best practice, but it's, uh, and it's what's driven, I think, some of the huge success we've seen over the last 12 months. And uh, back to a point Matt made about what are we going to bottle up? If we can bottle up a little bit more of that, a little bit less if we're going away for three years and we'll just be a product at the end of it, then I think we'll be in a much better place.
0: Excellent, thanks. Um, <clears throat> We've got a question from Anonymous, surprisingly. Uh, Which country is doing this best and why?
6: Really good question. Um, There are some, some, in terms of public sector deployments, you would probably look to, I guess, Estonia, Denmark, Israel would be good examples. And I have to say, I think... um, yeah, and we can all debate, yes, they're slightly smaller, all of that. But actually, if you look at the sort of ways in which they've solved some of these problems and jump-started things, there's some really, really, really impressive work done out there. Um, I mean, even China, for all its downsides and it's it's a very different sort of society. <clears throat> if you look at the way in which the data is deployed across the health system in China, it's really impressive, you know, and uh, their ability to actually trace people into all of this is really good. So I think there are many, many examples out there. I will say a lot of those societies are ones in which they've they've solved the basic citizen identity problem problem in a way in which, for a variety of good and bad reasons, in the UK we simply haven't. So you know, and actually, a lot of this if you, if you can't identify a citizen. With all of, as Matt was saying earlier, all of the obvious and important restrictions around privacy. But if you can't actually, as you heard a little bit of the local authority, uniquely identify somebody across all of these things, things will fall through the cracks. And uh, those are some of the things that we really need to solve. I think we want to bring the UK up to absolutely, you know, world-class standard here.
0: I think that's a a debate that's not going to go away, isn't it? I'm sure Um, it (laughs) will. (laughs) Uh, Another question from Anonymous. Has your move fast and break things approach ever gone badly?
6: Um I, I I don't actually think move fast and break things is the right way to think about it. I think the I think the way to think about it, it depends what you mean by badly. Have I have I launched lots of things that didn't work? Absolutely yes. Um, most of the stuff I tried failed. Most of the stuff the organizations have worked have tried or failed. So in that sense you might argue, yeah, lots of it went really badly. We wasted a ton of effort and energy, we tried lots of things that didn't work. Um, but you know, the, the counter argument there is if you really want to drive a culture of innovation, if you really want to try and find the absolute breakthroughs, you've simply got to be willing to try things. And, you know, I think we've seen this very clearly over the last 12 months where lots of stuff that we all thought simply couldn't be done turned out to be really quite doable. And that's that's not just within government. That's across the whole way we interact, how we behave, all these things. So, um, you know, has it gone badly in the sense that have we tried lots of things that have failed? Yes, absolutely. Um, would I trade off? You know um, all of those failures for the successes we've had. Absolutely. Um, so I think my, you know, I think on the whole, I take I take ten failures for the one success that pays for a hundred failures any day.
0: This probably flows very nicely into the next question, inevitably from Anonymous. Uh, how does what you've seen delivered over the last year, compare to your experiences of the private sector, is government keeping pace with industry leaders? And I suppose what, um, this is from me rather than Anonymous, what do you think the biggest differences are in approaching sort of big data products and projects in the private sector versus the
6: public sector? I, I mean, I, I would... Be very careful about trying to draw a very binary private public sector differentiation. That's just not the way we should think about it. Um, I would say having having worked for some, some, having looked at the best of the private sector, and the worst of the private sector, and you might argue some of the best and worst of the public sector. You know, really, the public private is not the right way to think about it. I think there are examples of uses of data, deployments in the public sector that would stand toe-to-toe with the very best you see anywhere in the private sector um, and, and and vice versa. Um, I think probably there is, if there's one thing that I would call out as a, as a caution though is I think if you look at certainly leading um, technology-based organisations in the private sector, be they pharmaceutical companies or technology companies as it's commonly understood or all of that. I don't think you would be able to reach a senior leadership pro- position in those organizations with the level of, without, without a really quite deep level of technical literacy. And that doesn't mean you need to be able to cut code and do this, but I think it would be considered weird to put somebody in a leadership position in what we think of as some of the most effective private sector organizations. If you didn't, when you looked at the situation, at least be able to approach it and say, well, what should I use people for? What should I use automation for? You know, I mean, even people throw around words like AI and machine learning, but you know, just how I many people actually really understand what the value-creating lever of machine learning is? You know, why why does why does machine learning help? Why does it create value? Why does it improve decision making? You know, and and the answer is very simple: it's about velocity. That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't necessarily make better decisions; it just makes them faster, and not ten times or a hundred times faster, billions or a hundred billion times faster. And it's that speed that enables you to get granular, and that turns out to be enormously value creating. I'm not sure, um, from my experience of working with a lot of um, public sector organisations, that that we quite yet have a critical mass of senior leaders who just understand the basic principles there, and that which is why it's terrific to see some of the initiatives that Pamela and others are pushing to really drive that. That's probably for me the, the biggest gap, and and there are brilliant examples in the public sector. There are brilliant examples in the private sector. Don't get hung up on that. Just take the best of what you see, whether it's other countries around the world or other types of organisations. And uh, I see no reason why we shouldn't be absolutely the best. And we've got great examples where we are.
0: I think that brings us perfectly to eight minutes. Doug, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for
6: inviting me. Pleasure.
0: And um, sorry to everybody whose questions that we couldn't get to um, this evening. Loads of brilliant questions that we were able to put to our speakers and lots that we weren't uh, due to time. But thank you nonetheless for all of the questions. Um, All that remains for me is to uh, go through a few parish notices, the most important of which, of course, is to uh, give you the details uh, for joining us for drinks um, shortly, uh, which you can hopefully see on the screen. Uh, The link is bit.ly slash db18drinks and the password is ifgdb18. Uh, just a few final things to run through. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the next data bites will be on, the, on Wednesday, the 5th of May. Um, this is just one of many IFG events over the next few weeks. So do take a look at the IFG website and um, lots of things on everything from, from reshuffles to civil service skills, a topic that's come up an awful lot this evening. So do take a look at that. And all that remains for me to say uh, before drinks now is um, three thank yous. First of all, to you, the audience, for joining us tonight and wonderful questions as ever. To Newton for supporting tonight's event and giving us some wonderful speakers. And please do join me in a virtual round of applause for our fabulous speakers this evening. A huge thank you to them and thank you again to you for joining us. Hopefully see you at drinks. Have a very good evening.